Today being Father's Day, we're going to take a break from our study in Second Peter and we're going to look at a, how to be a great dad found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1-4. through four. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Bill will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1-4. through four. Apostle Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Again, the title of my message is How to Be a Great Dad. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time we can spend this morning. Thank you for your word. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, that they would come to know you as our Lord and as our Savior this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to, to begin by giving a special welcome to you fathers. Happy Father's Day to you guys out there. It's always a brave thing to come to church on Father's Day, knowing you're going to hear about how to be a better father. It's always brave. Out of curiosity, I just kind of want to know how many we have. Let's start with great-grandfathers. Is there any great-grandfathers here in the, in the room? Stand, why don't you stand up and stay standing? Stand up and stay standing. Come on, stand up. Wow. All right. Way to go. How about grandfathers? How many grandfathers do we have? Stand up. All right. How many dads? All right. I'll give you a hand. If you stand up as a grandfather, then the father kind of... My grandfather. Well, if you're a grandfather, then you're a great... Never mind. I want all you guys to stand up again, to just stand up all, all, all generations of great grandfathers, fathers, because we're going to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every man in this room that is standing. Men that honor their commitments, first of all, to you, then to their wives and to their, their children. Lord, they've been upright. They've been godly men of integrity. Father, would you bless them today and continue to keep your hand upon them in a special way as, as great-grandfathers, grandfathers, and fathers. May they pass on a godly legacy to their children. And so we thank you for them. We ask your hand to be upon them. Bless them this day, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Now, I do have to say that I do believe you are all great dads because... You're here in church. You know, Mother's Day, we usually have quite a bit of moms on Sunday, but Father's Day, it's typically live. But man, you've made it here today. So good for you today. And just by a way of encouragement, we're going to look at what the Bible says about being a great dad. Now, I know there's some moms here. I know there's some single folks here as well as youth, but I believe God will still speak to our hearts as well because it's from His Word. And anytime you look at His Word, God speaks to our hearts. But what does it take to be a great dad? Maybe to be a good dad, you need to be able to tell some good dad jokes. Like, what did the baby corn say to the mama corn? Where's popcorn? What do you call a line of men waiting to get haircuts? A barber cue. 
Why do seagulls fly over the sea? If they flew over the bay, they'd be bagels. <laughs> Finally, you're going, thank God. I ordered a chicken and an egg online. I'll let you know. Get it, which arrives first. Yeah, I'll stop. But that's what a dad does. That's what it takes to be a good dad. But what does it take to be a great dad? Three building blocks it takes to being a great dad. First and foremost is you must have a sincere walk with God. You must have a sincere walk with God. That you've come to Christ. That you've had your sin forgiven. That you've been born again. If not, I strongly encourage you today to surrender your heart and life to Him. Because the greatest impact that we can have on our children is for them to see at a very early age just how much you love God. That you walk with Him. It's been said that the cure for crime is not the electric chair, but the high chair. Starting early, teaching them what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the bottom line is if we don't know God ourselves, then how can we introduce Him to our children? If we are are, are faithless and godless and living our lives according to our own direction and ambitions, then we can have no part in directing our children to God and to faith and to selfless living. Now, I must know the Lord for myself. Now, folks, that's why we were created. That's why you and I exist. It's to know God. Everything else is secondary. Your career, the possessions you have, even your ministries, all are a distant second to knowing God. We're told this uh, in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So first and foremost, in the building blocks, we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do, then you're ready for the second building block in being a great dad, and that is you must have a strong marriage. It's what God has intended for you to have. Marriage is to be an enjoyable, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. There's a story of a woman that was bragging one time to a girlfriend. She said, my husband and I have a very happy marriage. There's nothing I wouldn't do for him, and there's nothing he wouldn't do for me. And that's the way we go through life, doing nothing for each other. <laughs> Listen, anyone can have a strong marriage as long as his or her walk is strong in the Lord. When two people come together under the authority of the Word of God, God blesses their marriage. Any marriage can be strong if the man will submit to his wife's needs and the woman will submit to her husband's authority and if both man and woman are submitted to Christ. So a personal relationship with Jesus, a strong marriage under the authority of the Word of God, that brings us to the third building block in being a great dad and that is a good relationship with your kids. Now let me say, if you're always putting God first in your relationship, then you're already a great dad. Because the best thing you can do is to let your family see how much you love the Lord and serve Him and live for Him. But this is a special Father's Day study and we we do have a text we're looking at. So this morning I want to look at specifically at verse 4 here of Ephesians chapter 6. And as a dad, what does the Lord show us about being a great dad? Look at verse 4. We're told a new father's Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So Paul here, first off, points out that the chief responsibility of raising raising our kids falls upon the father. 
Truly, the father is the dominant figure in the family and his role is vital. The Bible over and over implies to be without a father is the greatest affliction for the family. But God provides in those situations. Hosea 14.3 says, For in you the fatherless finds mercy. Psalm 146.9, The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widows. Psalm 68.5, God is a father to the fatherless. The defender of widows is God in His holy habitation. My dad passed away when I was just three years old, almost four years old. My mom never remarried. And I have to tell you, in my own life, God has provided for, has been a dad to me every step of the way. I needed answers. I needed things probably to just pray. God has been a father to me and continues to be that father to me my whole life. See, God righteously, uh, righteously and mercifully reaches out to those that are in need. But I think even worse than, than not having a father is, is a, a home without a father is a home where the father fails to fulfill his role as a father. Here's an article I found from uh, the opinion section of Fox News, and it says this. There's little doubt that America is experiencing an unprecedented fatherless crisis. Approximately 80% of single-parent homes are led by single mothers, therefore leading to nearly 25% of our youth growing up without a father in the home. The staggering statistic has not only destroyed the nuclear family, but has devastated communities across the nation. For example, 85% of our children, of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes, and over 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers originate from homes without fathers, end quote. Certainly, the way our economy is, is, there are times when as provider for the family, the dad needs to be away from home. But the problem comes when the dad doesn't need to be away from home, but he might as well be. And there are many homes where, where this is the case. For whatever the, the reason, the father's kind of checked out. He, he's either too busy or careless or just plain ignorance of the importance of being a full-time father. And I think the absence of a father is a great tragedy and brings on increasingly, increasingly more problems in our society. That's why Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. You might want to underline that word in your Bible, provoke, and right next to it the word exasperate. It means to irritate someone, to make someone extremely frustrated, bitter, and angry. A lot of people are like that today. Not that they are irritating, but they are irritated. They're, they're, they're filled with frustration and bitterness. Why? Well, we live in a world that often threatens our marriages, our families, and our children. A culture that rejects the truth of the Bible, mocks biblical morality, glorifies sex and violence, and laughs at drunkenness and rudeness. We live in a society that for all practical purposes rejected the notion of truth and morality. They've lost the ability to decide what is true and what is right because of their rejection of the Word of God. In place of biblical authority, we now have a society where truth is a matter of opinion. Morality has been placed with individual preferences. In other words, truth is whatever is okay for you. That's your truth. Listen, we face a daunting task of raising children amid a culture just like that, a culture in crisis. What has changed? Well, obviously society has, but I think between media and social media and smartphones and tablets and access to the Internet, it has opened the door for atheists and agnostics and LGBTQ and climate change advocates and CRT and woke proponents, all access to your child, whether you like it or not. 
Everything that is out there today is undermining the biblical worldview. According to an article by Jonathan Morrow of Impact 360 Institute, he says this, Given the prevalence of social media and screens in our society, we are seeing an acceleration of ideas, beliefs, and practices that are out of step with what God has revealed in the Bible. Fewer people than ever have a biblical worldview in America. And then he quotes a poll given by George Barna, which gives an overview of, uh, by generation. He says 10% of boomers have a biblical worldview. 7% of Gen Xers have a biblical worldview. 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview. And 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. That's not an encouraging trend. Another poll I read shows millennials have a 2% biblical worldview and they don't even mention Gen Z's. All that to say is that teens are less Christian and more confused about moral and spiritual truth than ever before. And as parents, it's happening right underneath our noses. And sadly, I think a part of the problem is that many times what happens as fathers is we become really good at the art of delegation, which on the job, at work, and that, that's good. It can be good, even necessary. But the problem is we can bring that same mentality home. And we expect our wives or, or the church's Sunday school teachers or our grandma and grandpa to take on the task of pouring in uh, you know, God's word to, to our children. Yeah, Paul points out here that the chief responsibility of, of raising our kids falls on the father. So as being obedient to the Lord and to his word, we as fathers need to pay attention to our responsibility. Stand up, take the reins in our homes. We cannot afford to put it, push it off to any degree. Truly, the father is the dominant figure in the family and his role is vital. Now, when Paul penned these words in Ephesians 6, at that time in the Greek and Roman culture, the typical Roman father, father was an absolute ruler. I mean, absolute ruler. He had the power by law to sell his children as slaves, train them to work in the field, punish them as he, as he determined, even if it meant ordering out the death penalty. They were his property. So it's from that line, train of thought, that Paul here says, Dads, do not exasperate your kids. Don't deal with your children in a way that's going to make them bitter. Now, I know most of us, we don't set out purposely to annoy our children. Well, not all, not all the time. Only certain grown children who happen to work for you. But, but anyway... There is a danger that we do so not knowingly. And so because of that, it's important for us to identify those things that we may do that will exasperate our children, that will provoke them and cause bitterness and resentment in their hearts. Now I want to give you nine things that we're not to do. Now I have to tell you, I shared these nine things probably about oh, 10, 11 years ago uh, when my kids were still young. And I'm looking at these things and I'm going, man, they are fitting for us today, even more so with my kids being adults. I'm going, I can apply them even now. Not with my grandkids. My grandkids are perfect. But anyway, <laughs> well, I'll give you nine things that, that would exasperate or provoke our children that we're, we're not to do. First thing on the list, in a way that we provoke our children, is not letting them be who they are. Children. Not letting them be who they are. I read a story about a father who was becoming quite ir irritated because of how long his six-year-old son took to get home from school. The father was determined to take the trip himself just to see how long it should take to cover the distance. And he concluded that it should only take 20 minutes from get to get to school to get to home, maximum. It was taking his son well over an hour. Finally, the father decided he was going to walk with the son. 
Well, after the trip, the dad said, well, the 20 minutes that I thought were responsible, reasonable, it was right. However, I felt to consider such important things as a side trip to track down a trail of ants, to stop and watch a man fix a flat tire, or the six or so uh, trips around a telephone pole in a circle, or to see how long it takes for the boy to get acquainted with a couple of stray dogs. In short, the man said, I forgot what it was like to be a six-year-old. Listen, kids are kids. When they make those irritating noises or say silly things, we shouldn't scold our kids because they act like kids. Certain things kids do simply because they're kids. Now, that's true for teenagers as well. When they make those different irritating noises or say silly things, we shouldn't scold them. And even though they seem to be getting older, there is still a lot of kid in them. I think that's easy to forget. Their voices may change, and they may sound like a 22-year-old, but they're still 13 years old at, you know, at age. And we need to realize that. And not say to your 4-year-old, why don't you just act your age? Because they, they are. Second way we can provoke our kids or exasperate them is by treating them cruelly or harshly. Their lives are fragile. We may not be uh, guilty of being brutal physically, but what about pushing our weight around verbally? What may not seem, or what may seem insignificant to you or I can be very detrimental for our children. Remember the saying growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me? That's a lie. (laughs) They do hurt. The fact remains they hurt. They dig deep into your heart. So we need to be careful how we deal with our kids verbally. Not to be harsh, but to have sympathy and compassion as a dad. We're told in Ephesians 4, verse 29, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. You know, instead of saying when they get, oh, brush it off, get up. Maybe at times they need for you to show compassion. Pray with them. Give them a hug. I mean, Dad, think about this. When they get hurt, who do we usually see them run to? Mom, right? Mom, I'm hurt. Not you. Because you've said over and over again, oh, come on, get up, quit your crying, shake it off. But Dad, the bone's sticking out of my skin. That's all right, you'll be fine. You know, when they get hurt, it doesn't make your kid a sissy for you to stop and pray with them. If anything, it teaches them that when they're hurting and you're not around, that they can find comfort from their Heavenly Father. Well, next, number three, we can provoke them or exasperate them by making fun of them in front of other people, especially their peers. Now, often, I don't think we do this on purpose, but it just comes out. We as dads pride ourselves in being funny. But there's a huge difference between a dad who can tell a good dad joke and just being a jerk of a dad. And kids know the difference. And there's that temptation just to be funny by undermining the qualities of that child in front of others pointing out areas in that child's life that they know that they struggle with and then teasing them about it in front of their friends. But that's not funny. The always teasing jerk of a dad is really just undermining his own authority and his child's sense of security and self-worth and he's really just teaching the kid how to become a bully. How about this one, number four? We can provoke our kids, exasperate them by comparing one child unfavorably with another. Favoring one child over another child. Saying things like, well, why can't you be more like your brother and make wiser decisions? Or why can't you get straight A's like your sister? Comparing them one with another, showering attention and affection on one child at the expense of the other, that can cause resentment. 
We want to see a biblical example of that. Look no further than, than going back to Genesis and read the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob was favored by his mother, Rebekah. Esau was favored by his, his father, Isaac. Essentially, they pitted two brothers against each other. And long after the parents were gone, the rivalry between the siblings carried on well into their adult years. And then ironically, Jacob, who knew what it was like to have favoritism, shows towards his, his brother, he, show, he goes and shows it to his son, Joseph. Remember Joseph's story. His dad gave him a, a coat of many colors, which basically meant, hey, you got this long, long sleeve tunic, this, this nice garment, only gave it to him. So his brother puts it on and goes out to his brothers in the hot field and, and, and uh, Joseph becomes sashaying his new coat. Hey, look what dad gave me. <laughs> no wonder they threw him into a pit, you know. Uh, but see, showing favoritism is a bad thing. Don't do that. Don't let that happen in your home. Proverbs 22.6 says something interesting that we often quote. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. That phrase, uh, in the way he should go, can be translated according to their bend. Listen to the way the Amplified Bible puts it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and in keeping with the individual gift or bent, when he is old he will not depart from it. It's just a simple recognition that no two children are exactly alike, just as no two snowflakes are alike. Some children, they're more compliant, good-natured, and happy, while others seem to be cranky all the time. Believe me, I have five grown children and six grandchildren and one more on the way. I let you know that today, right now. And they're all different. Going, who's the one more on the way? Laura and Dan are having another baby, so praise God. All that to say... They're all different. Some are naturally artistic, or some are more mechanical, some are more logical, some are a little more emotional. My granddaughter Madeline, she has this totally active imagination. One day she's a princess in a castle, the next day she's a mermaid under the sea. But my other granddaughters, Aubrey and Finney, the twins, they live in reality, okay? Madeline would say to them, I am princess so-and-so, so-and-so. And the twins will look at her and say, no, you're not, you're Maddie. Come on, reality. Every child is different. So you can't deal with them as though they were the same. So you adapt your training. You don't change the principles, but you adapt the way, adapt the way you apply them to the child's temperament. But the point is we need to learn to value each of our children, our grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, for his or her distinct qualities. But especially this is true for the role of the father. But it takes time. And it demands from fathers that you spend enough time with your children to be able to commend those qualities that your children have. You know, commending the things that you're beginning to see. But in order to do that, you must spend time with them, even if it means setting some special time aside. Just you and them. Maybe take your son to a baseball game. Or if he's not an athlete, take him to a, I don't know, a Star Wars convention. I don't know. Some place where you can spend some, some time with them and listen to them and talk to them. Take your daughter out, guys. Here it is. To the mall. No, not the mall. Yeah, take them to the mall. But if that's what it takes to spend some time with them, it's worth it. Maybe just having an impromptu conversation at home at the sofa. It'll save you money. But the point is, spending that time with them to learn to see what your child is gifted in and then commending them on the qualities that they have in their life. Well, the fifth way we can provoke them or exasperate them is by failing to express approval even when their accomplishments are apparently small. 
Let me repeat that again. Failing to express approval even when their accomplishments are apparently small. Often, when it's something big, we go, man, that was great. But when it's something small, yeah, you did okay. We don't commend them enthusiastically when they have these small improvements. When we see small successes, we don't say much. But man, take it the other way around. When we see that small mess they make, we go ballistic. I think, you know, this was really a lot truer back when my boys were in sports. You know, your 13-year-old son just carried the football eight yards with the entire opposing team on his back. And you say, man, you were so close to that first down, you just, you need to get a better jump. Or, or you know, your son just struck out two heavy hitters in a row on just three pitches. But the third guy walked. Man, you need to be able to throw that third strike, son. Listen, some of the things your children are accomplishing are great things. And we need to be careful not to always be putting them down with the little things, always looking at the negative. You want to frustrate and embitter and anger your child? Then be negative all the time, constantly criticizing them, pointing out their faults, sell them off for praise. And sadly, it seems like for some parents, it just comes natural to them. Don't be that way. Don't discourage your child's dreams if those dreams are worthwhile. Now, if they say, I want to live in a van down by the river when I get older, discourage that, okay? That's not good. But here's what your kids need to know. They need to know that you are always on their their side, always in their court, that no matter how well they do in academics or sports or how poorly they do, that no matter what, that you love them and you support them and you're there for them. Do your kids know that right now? Do they know that you're on their side? Have you told them that recently? Say, well, they're adults now. Listen, they'd still like to know. You know, a lot of kids carry this pain well into their adult years because their fathers never said, man, you did a great job. Because mom never said, you know, I love you. I think it would be maybe a surprise for them and a good thing to do if today as a dad, you picked up the phone first before they called you to wish you a happy Father's Day. You call them and just say, listen, I was thinking of you today. I just want you to know how much I love you. I'm so proud of you. So thankful for you. Believe me, it'll do a lot of good. And your, your little children, they need to hear it as well. They need to know no matter what, Dad, Mom, I, we are there for you. That really leads to the sixth way in which we can provoke or exasperate our children. And that is by neglecting them and making them feel like an intrusion. They need to know that they are a priority to us. They need to know how much we value them and cherish them. I think it's really easy for us to kind of push them aside at times. Oh, just go play outside. But we need to let them know they are important to us. Again, even into the teenage years, as they become our friends as well as our children, we need to let them know how much we value them. Next one is a big one, number seven, and how we can provoke or exasperate our children. Remember, these aren't ideas for you to try out. These are things we shouldn't do, okay? Number seven, being uncertain in our exercise of discipline in the home and in the family. Sometimes, kids in the homes, it can be like they're walking on eggshells. See, one day the child can be disciplined for one thing, and the next day it's not a big deal. We need to be careful, mom and dad, that the principles we lay out and the guidelines we set up are consistent. I mean, think about this. What if the police department became uncertain about the laws? If one day the speed limit was 55, but another day it was 95. But if one day, you know, red meant stop, green meant go, but the other day green meant stop and red meant meant go. Thursday, you know, green means stop, Friday's red means go. It would be very confusing to drive. 
it would be insane. There'd be one tragedy right after another. If a sign says stop on Saturday, but it means go on Monday through Friday. So in order to keep order on the street, you need consistency. So too, our children need the same type of consistency in the homes. As parents, as fathers, they need to know what we expect and not change the rules from day to day. If running through the house and screaming is wrong on Monday, it needs to be wrong on the rest of the week. That goes for us as parents as well. Running through the house and screaming is wrong for you too. But you, know, you can't expect your children to obey the guidelines you set down for them if you don't apply them to yourself. Then number eight, we need to seek to make them not achieve our goals, but God's goals. Let God do the work in their hearts. Don't try to force your kids to be something they're not. Let them achieve the goals that God has set out for them, not you. Don't try to force your son to be this sport athlete if, if he wants to, to you know, be a computer whiz. Or just because you didn't make it into the pros, don't force your kids to try. Especially dads trying to impose on your kids whatever you never attained for yourself. Then finally, number nine, don't provoke your kids by overprotecting them. There's a fine line between protecting our children from harm and allowing them the freedom they need to discover how they will make their own way in this world. Every father, I believe, has to work out his own guidelines for his own children because you know what's best for your kids. At least you should. But we do need to equip our kids so someday when we are no longer here, they have learned for themselves how to make good decisions on their own. But while they are still here, we can help them learn. We can help them grow. We need to be men and fathers who are involved in their lives. Not to provoke them so they, can, they, they can, can't make any decisions, but neither we to go the other way by letting them make every decision. Neither one is good. Neither way is good. Any extreme is not good. Years ago, Ann Landers recorded a letter from her father to, to son, in which I think she balances it all out. She says this, uh, Dear son, as long as you live under this roof, you will follow the rules of our house, we do not have a democracy. I did not campaign to be your father. You did not vote for me. We are father and son by the grace of God. I consider it an honor and a privilege, and I accept the responsibility. And accepting it, I have an obligation to perform the role of a father. I'm not your pal. The age difference makes such a relationship impossible. We can share many things, but you must remember that I am your father. This is 100 times more meaningful than being a pal. You will do as I say as long as you live in this house. You are not to disobey me because whatever I ask you to do is motivated by love. This may be hard for you to understand at times, but the rule holds. You will understand perfectly when you have a son of your own. Until then, trust me, love dad. I think that father has the right attitude. He recognizes in that letter his own responsibilities and carries them out lovingly and firmly. He isn't far from the biblical role of a father. So we've learned the negative things, what we are not to do. What are we supposed to do? Well, look at verse 4 again. Paul tells us we're to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let me give you three positives in that verse when it comes to raising our kids. First and foremost, Paul says, bring them up. It's a phrase that means to nurse them up to maturity, to, to nurture. So the first step is to bring them up. That responsibility falls on you, Dad. So how do you do it? Number two. In the training. In the training. It's interesting, the same word for training here is the word chasten. That's found in Hebrews 12, verse 6. It says this, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. You see, the bottom line is, even as you help your children walk in the path God has laid out for them, 
It's your responsibility, Dad, to deal with the sin nature that's within them. Every child, every person that is born is born empty, insufficient, and in need of a touch from Jesus. Evidence is illustrated really in this, this illustration called the property laws of a toddler. If you have a toddler, you'll know this illustration is true. If not, volunteer in the children's ministry and you'll see that it's true. It's called 10 property laws of a toddler. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Here's the fact. Again, if you have children, you know this. Kids are born sinners. There it is. Oh, they're talented. After all, God has, has, has made them in the image of God. They're, they're, they're full of all kinds of potential packed in those little bodies. But there's also sin and rage and anger and hostility all packed in there. One study of juvenile delinquency came to this conclusion. They write, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and totally self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny him these things and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness that would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue on in their self-centered world of infancy, every child would go to be a criminal, a thief, a rapist, and a killer. That's why Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Don't let the world that says spanking is harmful to your kid's psyche, don't, don't, don't let the world tell you that. That's irresponsible. Why? Because it goes against what the Bible says. The Bible says in Proverbs 29.15, The rod and rebuke of wisdom, but a child left himself brings shame to his mother. Because if you truly love your children, you will discipline them. Now it should be done at an early age. Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. So don't neglect uh, your children by failing to discipline them. Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So it's biblical. And in fact, since we're on the subject of discipline, and since there seems to be so much disagreement in the church, let me give you some tips on how to discipline your child that just might help you out. First of all, number one, like I said, you should start young so they know what to expect as they get older. Number two, it should never be in anger. If you have to walk away and calm down, walk away to then come back. Number three, it should be based on prior instruction. You should never spank your kids uh, and then tell them uh, why two days later. Number four, it should be done in private, not in public, not in front of others. Number five, you should tell them why they're being disciplined and what rules they violated. Number six, it should be done in the right place of the anatomy. And God has provided just the right spot to apply the discipline. I've shared this before. 
By God's design, the rod of discipline should be applied to the seat of understanding. (laughs) Number seven, it should be done with a rod, I think, or a wood spoon. I believe for two reasons. Number one, you can't tell how hard you hit when you you swat them with your hand. It's more of a blow. Whereas a stick or a wood spoon, you know, you can just tell. it, It just stings. And secondly, the hand is used for, for loving and cuddling, and I'd rather them associate, uh, uh, you know, discipline with a wooden spoon than with my hand. And then number eight, look for a change in their heart. Look for that repentance and that sorrow, and then take the time to pray with them and to love them and to forgive them and to not bring it up again, just the same way that God disciplines us and forgives us. Restore them after they've been disciplined. Susanna Wesley the mother of 17 children. Could you imagine that? 17 children. They included John and Charles Wesley, the great evangelist and hymn writer, founder of Methodism. She wrote these words, and I quote, The parent who studied to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the saving of a soul. The parent who indulges self-will does the devil's work, makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that is in him to drown his child's soul and body forever. You see, we need to be partners with God in the disciplining of our children. And again, the purpose of discipline is not for the venting of adults' wrath, but for the purpose of teaching a child what is right and what is wrong. In my personal opinion, uh, uh, spanking should be reserved for those times when a child does something dangerous or deliberately disobedient. Often just a few words of instruction delivered in love and concern for the child are all that's needed. You know, there are times that all the child will hear is a physical reminder administered in love and followed with the reassurance that he or she is indeed loved. Sometimes other, other child, all they hear is that little spanking and that will help them to listen. This brings us to a third positive step you can take towards being a great dad. Bring them up in the training in verse 4 and the admonition of the Lord. That word admonition means verbal instruction with warning. It has the idea to be placed before the mind. I think that it's a father's chief responsibility to instruct their children in spiritual things. Now, in order to do that, Dad, you need to be spiritual. Too many dads neglect knowing the Bible. Some of the children have learned more from Sunday school than you as a dad. No, that shouldn't be. Know your Bible. Know the Word of God. Be a man of the Word. Study the Scriptures and communicate them to your children. Teach them to your children. Pray for your children, with your children. Be an example of a man of prayer. And set an example to your kids of what it means to serve the Lord in ministry. Making the Lord a priority in your life. Focusing your life on church and involvement with God's people. Those are things that we can do right now that we need to set as an example for our children to be able to seize the moments that we have when they are teachable. When they are receptive to what you have to say. To talk to them about the things of God. If fathers are to instruct their children, they need to do it through the word, by the word, and being that godly example. In fact, we're told that. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. This is in the New Living Translation. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Do you hear that? Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So as we close, if we're to be godly parents, then we need to be that example to our children. 
We need to seize the moments that we have when, when we're teachable again and receptive and, and to talk to them about the things of God. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Lay that godly foundation in your home. Men, don't give up. Be the spiritual leaders uh, to your wife, to your children that God has called you to be. Be the godly example in your home and put these principles to work. Wives, be the wife that God has called you to be. Grandparents, be all that you can be. I can't tell you uh, how many testimonies of people I've heard of them coming to faith in Jesus Christ where they'll say, you know, it was my grandma. It was my grandpa. They prayed for me and they would read the Bible to me and, and I just realized I needed to know the Lord. You see, the best, as it's been rightly said, the best defense is a good offense. Meaning the best way to protect our family from some of the horrible temptations, the godless elements that are out there, is to take the offensive, to equip our kids. I think this is aptly shown in the words of King David to his son Solomon in First Chronicles 28.9. We'll close with this. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands all the intents of your thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. He said, know the God of your father. What and who are your children seeing as your God? Not by simply what you're saying, but the way that you're living. See, it starts with you. It starts with me as parents. May God help us to be godly parents, grandparents, great-parents. May God help those who have younger children, because I've been there. You need God's help, you know, as parents, for grace and mercy to come out upon your life, raising God's kid, holding up the, the narrow way that God has called you to do as his children and his family. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, as I mentioned already, that's the first and foremost step in raising godly kids. You've got to come to faith in Christ yourself. So if you want to know Christ today, come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Christ. But I want to close with this, uh, this video. It kind of puts it all in a nutshell, and so we'll close with this, and we'll pray, and we'll do one last song together. So hit it, guys. Victor, no, it doesn't mean you should. Oh, no. Victor, it doesn't mean 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love towards us. Thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. Lord, that you're always there for us. You love us unconditionally. You pick us up when we fall. You're there to lead us and guide us in the paths of righteousness. Thank you, Lord God, that we can call on you uh, in time of need. And Lord, thank you that you've sent your Holy Spirit to give us the power and the strength to live this life pleasing to you in spite of what's going on in this world around us. Thank you for the power that you give us by your Holy Spirit to raise godly children and to help raise godly grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Thank you for the grace you poured on us. Lord, again, I pray for us as parents, as fathers. Give us that wisdom we need to raise our children in your ways. And Father, Lord, I do pray again, if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, that they would give their life to you this morning. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We give you the praise and honor. In Jesus' name we praise. Amen.